Good day, everyone. Jeff Cross here. Um, you can contact me at jeffcross22 at gmail.com. You can also follow my Facebook page, which is TNG. That's T for tenacity and symbol and G for grit, tenacity and grit to find all of my podcast and uh, posts that I might put up that might inspire or motivate you on a daily basis. Um, today's guest is no doubt a special one. Uh, I'm going to do my best not to say the name until the very end, but it's hard not to on this one. So um, today's guest started officiating women's division one basketball in 1984. She's officiated 23 final four tournaments, including 15 national tournaments um, in 97. Her and Violet Palmer all became the first women referees in the NBA. She's also officiated in the NBA for five years. Additionally, she has an extensive FIBA experience, including uh, in 1994 and 98, the Women's World Championship, and in 2000, the Olympics. Uh, she's a recipient of the Naismith Award in 97. Uh, she's also inducted into the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame in 2019. Um, she served on a number of management roles, but I want to get down to the very bottom. This is what I think is the coolest thing about what she does. She is the first official to serve on the K. Yao Cancer Fund Board of Directors. K. K. Yao's are, I'm saying it wrong. She, I'll edit this out. She is the first official to serve on the K. Yao Cancer Fund Board of Directors. Ladies and gentlemen, D. Kantner. D, are you there? I am here, Jeff. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> Gosh, that whole list, I think. <laughs> What was that? I missed it. I'm sorry. I laughed too hard. <laughs> that's, that's exciting stuff, D. Exciting stuff. So I want to just, act, because when I read this bio of yours, um, I really want to start there. I know we, in our pre-interview, we kind of talked about a few things, but I really want to ask about this. Um, how did you become involved in the KL Cancer Fund? You know, Jeff, I have to be honest, it's it's truly, and, and I thank you for appreciating the gravity of that position. It, it's something I'm extremely proud to be part of. Um, Stephanie Glantz, who is our CEO of the KL Cancer Fund, phoned me one summer. In fact, I was on a motorcycle ride, and I stopped, looked at my phone, and ironically, you know, it's hard to answer a phone while you're riding a bike, mm. I'll be honest, but I had momentarily stopped to get a drink of water or whatever, and, and Stephanie Glantz called me and invited me, and um, I've had the privilege in my past, you know, since you read that I started officiating in 1984 when I was a mere five years old. You didn't know I was a protege, but... That's right. Exactly. Um <laughs> But, you know, I've had the path to have the honor to referee for KL and, of course, had nothing but immense respect for, you know, for her. And, of course, uh, when Stephanie invited me to be part of the, of the board, I started tearing up and said, absolutely, mm -hmm. I'd be honored. And it truly is a, something I love doing and love representing the officials who have responded tremendously, you know, to try, you know, this board – you know, and the KL Cancer Fund is just something that, you know, when you're talking about charitable contributions or charitable funds, they have like how much money's earned go into the mission statement. KL's at 82% of mm -hmm. 
of the mm. monies earned go into the mission statement. That is just anything above 70% for a charity is, is great. So 82 mm. is remarkable. But it's just an amazing group of people to be involved with. And obviously, the goal of helping to do research to cure cancer, to help the underserved, is something that's way beyond, you know, being a basketball official. So mm. I'm thrilled to be part of it. Thank you. I love it, too. And, I, you know, sometimes, you know, we as officials kind of get pigeonholed into, you know, whatever, whatever hole that is. We don't care right now. But <laughs> but ultimately, we are we we are we are aiming for the greater good, you know, the greater good of humanity, you know, greater good of officiating, the greater good of the game, you know, and this is something that it truly aims towards that. So I think that's really, really cool. So great. We, thank you. Before we go any further, can you give some people uh, maybe a way to contact, maybe if they can want to help with the KL fund or, you know. There's a fabulous website, KL, I I believe it's just that easy, klcancerfund.com. And how all officials know I'm rallying on behalf of the fund, but I believe that is, you know, just do a little Google search and you'll find there is a link and you can read all about the mission statement. They've been doing some tremendous uh, podcast, not really podcast, but Facebook interaction, uh, showing some of the cancer warrior survivors this summer. And oh, is it summer yet? I guess technically it's mm. not <laughs> yet. Seems like it is. But, and, you know, they're doing a lot of things. And in lieu of the pandemic, you know, obviously we've, we've had to cancel the golf tournament that is an annual, you know, huge event for us, but, you know, they're coming up with other things in its stead. So I encourage all to take a look at that. And please, you know, if you've got a little extra income, donate, because like I said, 82% of money's raised are going toward research, going toward the mission statement, which is a remarkable, remarkable uh, fund. I'm That's awesome. You. So keep that in mind, everyone who is listening. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to, I'll find that link, D, and I'll put it on my Facebook page too. So we can get, get, the, get the word out there a little bit more. So, all right, let's get into it. Let's go back to 1984. Your first, first <laughs> division one game. I mean, shake the cobwebs off, figure out, can you, can you share a little bit of that, that experience um, I, I really would like to hear ultimately, I think, what your experience was in 1984. Then if you just relate to a Division One game now, how it's changed in those in those times. Oh, epic changes, epic changes. And, and just being part of Division One, I, I mean, I, I fell into it uh, fortuitously. Let's put it that way. I moved to North Carolina to accept a position with Westinghouse Electric Corporation. I was a sales and I accepted a position in Pittsburgh and they relocated me to Asheville, North Carolina. And I had been refereeing in Pittsburgh. I started my senior year at Pitt and, you know, one more year while I was there working for a consulting engineering company. And then I hired on with Westinghouse and they sent me to North Carolina. You know, I've had what, two years officiating experience, basically grade school, high school, a little bit of Division Two, And when I got to North Carolina, a woman named Joe Kafer, who unfortunately is no longer with us, but Joe was in charge of, at that time, the Southern Conference, the Metro Conference, which is no longer mm-hmm. in existence, a conference that South Carolina used to be uh, part of. And anyway, Joe had the Southern Conference and some other smaller conferences. And she contacted me. I mean, how about that? That's a little <laughs> anomalous as to what, what's going on today. But 
she contacted me and called me and said, because someone from Pittsburgh had called her and said, hey, you got a good young kid. You know, I was 24 years old at that time. And I just turned 24 when I moved to Asheville. And uh, she called me and said, hey, um, we're having a, a clinic down in Atlanta. I understand you officiate. Would you like to attend? You know, we need some officials. I'm like, sure, why not? I, I did not know the gravity of Division One. I. I did not know the gravity of anything at that time. All I knew was like, hey, I like to officiate. It's avocational and truly avocational in 1984. Um, yeah, let's go. So I went to Atlanta, and this clinic was being run at that time by the National Rules Editor. And the National Rules Editor in 1984 was a woman called June Corteau, <laughs> by the name of June Corteau. Now, those of you in, uh, you know, in basketball probably know that name. And June is our newly retired national coordinator. But in 1984, she was the National Rules Editor, and she was running this clinic. So I met June at that point. Now we connected, now we got to be friends, et cetera, et cetera. I go back to Asheville. Joe Kafer hires me in Division One, the Southern Conference. Southern Conference at that time, Appalachian State, Western Carolina, Furman. Now, it's changed tremendously since 1984, but I didn't even realize that was a big thing because it didn't seem like a big thing. I went to a clinic. They hired me. They needed, they needed young officials. There was just a paucity of officials in North Carolina, in particular, a paucity of women officials. So right time, right place. I happen to move to North Carolina for, you know, an engineering position with Westinghouse. I get hired in the Southern Conference. Boom. It's that easy. Isn't it that easy today? It's just like That's exactly that. exactly right. <laughs> gosh. I said it numerous times. I, gosh, I just don't know. You know, where I would be if I was starting out today, I know the, the trials, the tribulations, the toils, everything that goes into it. But, yes, it was way too easy for me in 1984. It's, uh, it's funny. So that's how that's I started. Awesome story. It's funny how you say um, you didn't really you're like, yeah, I'll just go. You know what I mean? You had no idea what yeah. that meant. And, no. and, and I, everyone wants to hear what you have to say, but I have to share the story the first time I went to a Division One <laughs> camp. Where literally I had, you know, Lisa Mattingly's and I had, you know, uh, Bev Roberts and I had Tiny Napiers and I had those people where they were my clinicians. And I remember someone asked me, who's your clinician? I'm like, I don't know, some girl named Lisa. There was there was a Tina in there. And like, uh, Jeff, those are final four officials. I'm like, oh, I just didn't know. You know what I mean? And I and I think some I think all of us do that. All of us can relate to that story where we just say okay let's try it we don't really know what we're getting into um obviously a little bit more um you know visual nowadays than it was back in 1984 so absolutely this wasn't even a camp it was just a clinic i mean it's not like i just went and listened to june talk about rules and rule changes and and that was it that wasn't even a camp they you know (laughs) we can get into my first camp was in 1985 and uh, it was a men's camp because they didn't have women's camps at that time. No I mean, way. my first camp was, was a men's camp. It was Hank Nichols' uh, camp, and there was 75 men and June and I. Mm. We were the only two women at this camp. And then Tommy Salerno did start a women's camp. It might have been 85, toward the end of 85, here in North Carolina. And that was it. So, no, there were not even camps. There were not camps for women's officials in women's basketball at that time. June Cortell, Marcy Weston, and I as a silent partner in 1985-86 started a camp in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. 
Now, in a, in accordance with Morgan Wooten, who is a you know a renowned high school coach in the Maryland area, we worked mm-hmm. in partnership with him. But we were one of the first camps designed just specifically for women's officials. So yeah, we're talking. Now it was way too easy. There mm-hmm. just weren't many women officials even trying, you know, out to be Division One. So right place, right time it, is all I can account for that. And then. Of course, having June Corteau June then as my very first mentor, yeah, you don't get any better than that initially either. So I would agree. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great story. That's, I, <laughs> I, just, I had no idea. You know, when you said clinic, I guess I just assumed camp. So that's nope. So mm-hmm. you got hired in yeah. Division One basketball, and no one really had seen you. I don't think I looked athletic. Come on, Jeff. I was I, I was I was athletic. <laughs> I looked athletic. That's all you needed to be. That is you know, so, I was athletic. So okay. That's yeah. it. She's oh. in. She's in. I love it. I love it. That's so awesome. <laughs> um, I'm going to share a story with you that um, I, I don't know if you'll remember or not, but I remember the very first time that I came face to face to you was um, in a, a East Coast camp. Uh, Might have been the Atlantic 10 back when Marie had it. And you did a presentation and you did a presentation um, basically educating others and, you know, about introverts and extroverts. And okay. You yeah, lab- we did a little Myers-Briggs test. Yeah, mm-hmm. you labeled yourself as an introvert, I believe. In that. I am. And that's um, – can you just walk us through a little bit of that and, you know, how you relate? Because we all know as officials a lot of times you really need to be a little bit more extroverted than you do introverted. And just can you walk through some of those struggles with us? Well, sure. I think – you know, and again, people misunderstand the, misunderstand the word introvert. Basically, an introvert is someone, uh, and I'm borderline. Any of the Myers-Briggs or DISC or any of the personality profile tests I take, I, I'm, I'm a borderline introvert. I'm not an off-the-scale introvert. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that, you know I, I adapt well to being an extrovert, but a true extrovert is someone who gains energy by being around others. I mean, they just, they're enthralled with being in the company of others, and they, they garner energy from others, and that's how they rejuvenate and blah, blah, blah. I don't. I adapt well to being an extrovert. I can do it. I enjoy being in front of others speaking. I, that does not stress me at all, but it wears me out. Mm. Being around others exhausts me, and for me to re-energize, I need to go back into a little corner, grab a good book. You know, just go within. I re-energize by being within myself. Now, obviously, there are many, you know, personality qualities. Some of us have to adapt to the floor. Uh, I remember the first time I even told my mother I was going to be a referee. She said, well, you'll last one game. You know, I have a team. I was like, well, thanks, Mom, for the confidence. No, she knows that, you know, I've got a little bit of edge to my personality sometimes. And being from the East Coast, you know, from outside of the Philadelphia area, she really felt that the first fan that yelled something at me, I said, I may not respond in the most professional manner. And, you know, so there are some challenges that you need to look within yourself and go, what do I need to do on this floor to be successful? What does a a successful referee look like? And there are, you know, certain personality techniques, you know, traits and, and qualities that you might have to adapt to be successful on that floor. So I've, I've learned that through the years, sometimes the hard way. You know, I think I'm a quick wit. I'm really fun. I love sarcasm. Sarcasm doesn't translate well on the floor sometimes. <laughs> so you have to, you know, you have to kind of rein that in because not everybody thinks it's funny. 
Yeah, I think I'm incredibly witty. In the heat of the battle, that witticism may not be the correct way to respond. Yeah, that is great advice. Great advice. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm funny. It doesn't work all the time. I, I relate that to my wife. My wife, you know, you know, because I'm the same way. I think I'm funny. And my wife's like, you know, you're really not that funny. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> let's just stop saying funny things, what you think is funny. So exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so it's very clear. And correct me if I'm wrong. This is an outsider looking in. You, you you said you got, you know, it was that easy. You got you got to start in the game pretty easily. But I believe that you worked tirelessly trying to improve your game via communication, via, you know, staying physically fit and things like that. Um, walk me, can you walk us through some of those steps that you, you did to improve your game? I mean, I, I, I can't imagine you just going, oh, yeah, I just got better. No, I did not just get better. And nobody gets better on their own. Mm-hmm. Um and it's something that I'm still working on. And, you know, and, and I appreciate that you read the bio and, you know, how many Final Fours and whatnot. But you know what? Nobody cares. Mm-hmm. When I go on that floor next season, they don't look and go, well, you know, she's a Final Four official. She's No, you're only as good as your last call. And, you know, we all have had some beauties. And I still will have some beauties. Mm-hmm. And it's like nobody cares about my resume. They care what I'm going to bring to the game that day. And... I still attack every game, every possession with the same fervor. And I, you know, I don't take anything for granted. I continue to, I mean, first of all, I think I have a little bit of an obsessive compulsive disorder as far as working out. I started lifting religious, I mean, I've been an athlete, competitive athlete since I was seven. Mm -hmm. And I started lifting when I was 17, which, you know, that wasn't the norm at that time either. And I probably, since the age of 17, you do the math. Uh, I might have missed maybe three days in a row, and that's about it. I work out every single day. I still do. And it's it's just I do, you know, I lift, I do body parts, I do cardio every day because I believe, well, first of all, it's my way of centering. And secondly, for being the most effective official I can be, I want to be in the best shape possible. You talk about the difference from 84 to 2020. These women are in amazing shape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to stay up with the game, they deserve the best I can give them. Now, it gets more and more difficult the older you get, but you just work harder, I guess. And hopefully parts don't wear out too much. Um, but as far as the commitment to the rules and, you know, the advice I always give young officials is control everything you can control. I can control my fitness. I can control my rules knowledge. I can read leadership books. I can look within and go, wait a minute, perhaps that's not the best way to deal with others. Perhaps, you know, let me uh, you know, understand why that communication didn't work. Like I said, I've been blessed with amazing mentors, June being my first one, Daryl Gerritsen, who was a former NBA supervisor, it's brilliant. He, you know, he's no longer with us either, unfortunately, but he was brilliant. And we used to sit there with salt and pepper shakers and lay out angles and what's the best way to look at a play. And, you know, and it's just I've had great minds to bounce ideas off of and work with and listen to. And I still do. And I just I love hearing from younger officials, you know. Maybe what I've been doing for 20, 30 years isn't the most effective way anymore. So it's a constant thing of learning. And, and the game has changed and athletes have changed. Mm-hmm. And how to deal with today's athletes is totally different than you dealt with them in 1984. Mm-hmm. So, you know, adapt, adjust, or um, basically be extinct. I think that's Darwinism in, in officiating. 
Wow. Yeah, that's I mean, I think that's very much true. You know, we 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 see that in in people in general, not just in officiating. We see people that weren't their job changes. And then mm-hmm. we see people who have been on this job, whether it be as an architect or whatever, I don't care what the profession is, they don't want to change with that. And then they find themselves really not liking their job anymore because they don't want to follow that that curve that it may be going in. And we, we need to do that in officiating probably, you know, not not even yearly. I mean, I feel like it's it's daily. We need to you know try and elevate our game, elevate our communication skills, elevate our rules knowledge on a daily basis. Not just, okay, it's time for another change here. So I think that's great. Um, so tell me, let, so we're going to go, really everybody wants to hear about this, right? They want to hear about your very first Final Four experience. And, you know, just, you know, talk, <laughs> us, talk us through the goosebumps, if you don't mind. Oh, my gosh. My very first Final Four experience, 1993. No, hold on, was it two? No, 1992. 1993 was my first national championship. Okay. 1992, first Final Four. It was in Los Angeles. Uh, we had a noon tip mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, okay? No, I'm sorry. We had a noon Eastern Standard Time tip, all right? So that's 9 a.m. in L.A., Right. which means <laughs> we are in the locker room at 7.30 a.m. It is, at that time, a two-person crew. And in fact, I'll give you the last two-person crew was 1995, and that was Larry Shepard and I on Tennessee versus UConn. But I digressed. Mm -hmm. I have a tendency to do that. Um, But so we'll go back to 1992, Los Angeles, 9 a.m. tip. I am working a semifinal game with Artie Bomagin, and the two teams are Southwest Missouri State, as it was known then, with Cheryl Bonnet as head coach and uh, against Western Kentucky, Paul Sandiford head coach. Now, those are two teams. Now, again, those aren't your you know traditional, historic Final Four teams, but they were great teams. Obviously, they're in the Final Four. And Artie Bomage and I were the two officials. Our alternate, ironically, my first Final Four, my alternate was June Cortell. Mm. So, first of all, I had interesting dynamic there because I felt bad that I was on the floor and June was the alternate. Mm-hmm. Now, because I was like, yikes. And, but she was great. She was very supportive. You're great, Dee. You deserve it. You know, all the things, whatever. So, we're in the locker room at 730 in the morning, and I don't know why. I mean, if you've ever worked with June and me, I know we both have, I guess, historically these great resumes, and everyone thinks we're always serious well, June and I had a tendency to sing songs when we worked together or be silly or whatever. So I don't know why at 7.30 in the morning, June started singing, going to the chapel. Mm. <laughs> I don't know why, Jeff. <laughs> you can ask her. You ever get on a podcast, you ask her why she chose that song. But, you know, June would bring out old songs. And, of course, I would join in. And Artie's looking at us going, what the heck are you two doing? That's awesome. You know? <laughs> so we're singing at 730 in the morning. I, I think she just tried to get me singing because she knew I was incredibly nervous. Mm. I mean, of course, I had this anxiety. Um, you know, I think I, I don't know how long I was in the bathroom. All those things right. you have to do because you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> But I just kept trying to breathe, and June there being, you know, a good friend and very supportive was, was such an asset, just going, D, you'll be great, you'll be great, you'll be great. Well, you know, already threw the ball up, because I was, you know, the U1, he was the referee, 
And, you know, obviously we didn't have a U2. We wish we did. Mm. So Ari threw the ball up. And, Jeff, I'm here to tell you, those two teams went at it. I think we are still historically in the, in the record book as having the most fouls in a Final Four game. The wow. most. It was, I, I believe it was one of the tactics from Western Kentucky, and I don't mean to, you know, if Paul Sandiford listens to this, I am not meaning to uh, malign him at all, but I believe it was one of his tactics to just get as physical as possible and see how many times we'd blow the whistle and see if we'd be fatigued. You know, this concept that the, whist- the officials will f- eventually get tired of blowing the whistle, they'll just stop calling fouls. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't. We called, and I just, <laughs> I know, it looked like I was parched through that whole game because I kept going over to the table because that's where June was. And I kept going to the table to get water, and she's like, keep blowing, Dean, keep blowing. I'm like, God, June, this is a travesty. This isn't a game. I mean, we got no flow. We can't, we can't facilitate pace of play. We can't do anything. They won't stop fouling. And I distinctly remember stepping into the key on one of the free throws in, in the middle of the first half, because we were in halves at the time, mm. and going, women, if you do not stop fouling, you're all going to fall out, you know, foul out. And I remember the next time down the floor, bam, I went, well, that was effective. There's another foul. <laughs> and honest to goodness, and we just, we caused just, the NCAA committee was beside themselves because at that time we were on CBS mm. and we were the prelim to the men's game. And, you know, we were going to run over by a tremendous amount because we had so many fouls and they're like, quit blowing the whistle. And we're like, well, tell them to quit fouling. We're going to have decapitation. It was I have to tell you, I just want, if this is what being in the Final Four is like, I'm not sure I want to do that. Uh, you know, it was a drudgery. It was anxiety. It was the NGA committee yelling at us, quit blowing the whistle. It was just, it was a, it was a fiasco. It just was. <laughs> and I was honored to be there, right? And right. Was, I mean, I got over the anxiety because I was just beside myself like, can we get some flow? Mm. And then the antithesis of that was 1993. I think I probably digressed to that one because it was so easy, comparatively. Mm. It was two teams, Ohio State, um, Texas Tech with Cheryl Swoop going off for 47 points. Sally Bell and I just basically the whole game put three fingers up and counted it good. Three mm. up, good. Three up, good. And <laughs> And we, you know, that game was just flow and Ohio State. And I mean, it was a one point game and we just kept them in bounds. It just flowed so smoothly. But uh, the first Final Four, not so much. So, but it was, you know, it was anxiety. My high school coach came, who is one of the most influential people in my life. My mother was there. You know, they flew from Pennsylvania over and whatever. So it was a great experience. But at the same time, it was a disaster. <laughs> It, it wasn't what you were, you, you had it in yes. your brain. It was going to be a lot different. You know, this is going to no. be great. And then you're like, I really have to work. <laughs> so, it was, right. it was a disastrous, was, great experience. How about that? Yeah, there you know, you go. Right. Contradiction of terms. <laughs> but, but, you know. Could you walk us through a little bit of the time? I'm not even sure what happened in, you know, 90, when you got your first final four, you know, was it an email? Was it a phone call? You know, kind of. Walk us from a, it was a phone from call. Those, yeah, and that was from the national coordinator, I'm assuming. It was right? from Marcy Weston, who was the national coordinator at that time. Yes, it was Marcy Weston was national coordinator, and she phoned. And, I mean, of course, you know, you, you start crying. I still cry. Mm-hmm. I, it doesn't matter. It's, it's still um, – it doesn't matter how many times you do a Final Four, whether you're blessed to get one or 
10 or how, ma- how many ever, it's still a culmination of, of just so many emotions of just like, holy cow, you know, you're, you're excited, you're thrilled, you're, you're honored, all those things. And for me, and I am an emotional person, I, it doesn't always look like that on the floor. I mean, it looks like I'm always cool and under control sometimes, but, mm-hmm. you know, I am very emotional and I still cry. But, you know, the first time I got that phone call and, and I, and I kind of mentioned before my high school coach is just my high school basketball coach was incredibly influential in my life and still is. We still talk all the time. And she made the promise and she hates to fly, but she promised my first final four she'd be there. So I called her as soon as I got off the phone with Marcy and said, you're getting on a plane to Los Angeles. So <laughs> have a flyer across the country. <laughs> but no, it, it's, I remember it distinctly. Yeah, it was Marcy calling and, and you still to this day, there are phone calls when you get to the final four. Oh, really? So, so still in Absolutely. 2019, it's a phone call. That yeah. is great to hear. Because, Absolutely. You know, that is a sometimes a lost art in the actual person-to-person communication that's not digitally. So I think no. that, that's great to hear because that, that is a huge moment um, for, you know, for anyone, obviously, whether you've had one, your first one, or it's your 20th one, it doesn't make any difference. It's still a very huge moment because that's when everyone is is working for in some way, shape, or form. So I think that's, Absolutely. that's really great news to hear. Um, yeah, you get emails up to the regionals, everything's online up to the regionals, and then the final four is a phone call. Sure, that's, that's, that's very good to hear. So, all right, so now the question is, I have three questions for you. Okay. We're going to save three one. wishes. Wait yeah, a minute. The magi. Right. Okay. Here we go. Yeah, yes. Wishes. I don't know if they're going to be wishes. So if, and I, you've already alluded to one, but I'm going to ask it again. Um, can you give me something in your life that is non-negotiable? Now you said, you know, every day you've worked out, you know, you've maybe missed three days. You know, is there something in your life that is non-negotiable every day that you try to do that, uh, you know, helps, you know, improve just the way you look at life and, and your mental health and, you know, well-being. Well, yeah, working out is definitely one of those things. Sure. I become, you know, and it is. It, it's mood-altering for me. Non-negotiable. Right now, my dog, who has an ACL tear, will have to walk her every day. That's non-negotiable. But truly, I think what's, what's really non-negotiable for me every day is just to wake up and go, wow, what a grateful, you know, how grateful I am for this day. And... I've lived an incredibly blessed life and I, and I continue to do so. And I try to think something, you know, every day, how can I help somebody else? Mm. And I think, and, and a few years ago when I resigned from the WNBA and you know, I had been their supervisor for a number of years, a few years ago, I had a summer off. It was my first summer off since I don't know when. And I was thinking going into that summer, what, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm so used to doing, you know, working 24-7, looking at basketball plays 24-7, doing whatever. And you know what, Jeff? The best thing that had to sit back and go, okay, now what do I do here? Fortunately, right now, do the, you know, I deliver friendship trays or Meals on Wheels, and, and I can't do that right now because, you know, they've scaled back. Mm. But just having the opportunity, you know, being part of the KL, being part of Meals on Wheels, being part of just simply, you know, talking to young officials, how can I help you in your career? Talk to anybody, just what else can I do? Walking through the neighborhood. You know, I had a woman ask last week, hey, do you do personal training? I said, no, I don't, but I know enough. Of, you know, I mean, I have. Will you stop by the house and help? Sure. Mm-hmm. Something that simple. If somebody asks for help or you see somebody needing help, help them out. I love so, it. 
You know, non-negotiable every day is just what do I need to do today to, to try to improve either life here at home or life in general for somebody else. You know, I, I've got a fabulous sister who lives here, who, who, you know, I basically moved here a number of years ago. And, you know, she's not had the easiest life all the time, you know, and I enjoy helping her out. We have a great relationship. You know, we talk every day. You know, I've had the opportunity to actually help her get her first house and whatever. So, you know, there are just things that life is great. And I, I think, you know, there's always negativity you can focus on, but I focus on the positivity and where do we go? How can we improve things today? And just by me hearing you say that, what I, what I would like for people to understand is D, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you go towards that. You know what I mean? You go towards a Absolutely. chance to help. There's so many people that there's a lot of us out there um, that will, they're not afraid to help, but they're not going to search it out. They're not going to you know, be observant to go, Hey, you know, hi neighbor, you know, can I help you with the pulling a garbage can back or whatever that is. So I think that's a great mindset to be able to say, I'm going to go search out ways to be, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I woke up and I'm going to go out and search out ways to be helpful every day. Non-negotiable. Absolutely. I love it. Absolutely. All right. Um, I have two more questions, but okay. this next one is what is the, you know, the book of choice for you right now, is there, you know, something that listeners out there say, you got to read this book, or if you haven't already read it again. Okay. What I am reading now, well, I read a couple books at one time. You know, I, I just, it, it depends on my mood, where I want to go. I'm also studying Spanish on Duolingo. So Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so I'm reading a couple of books, you know, just obviously the culture right now. Uh, you know, I am reading Lost in Shangri-La. I believe Penny Davis recommended mm -hmm. that one. And also uh, Charlene Curtis, who's a former coordinator of officials for the ACC. Mm -hmm. um, she recommended a book. I, I, let's see if I can get, you know, I just downloaded it. it it's impossible to get. And I'm I'm awful I'm awful with titles all the time Me and too. movies. <laughs> I, I just movies. I, I I will rent the same. I used to you know, blockbuster used to laugh at me because I'd go back. I'd have the same movie that I just watched the last week, and they're like, <laughs> "Seriously, Dave, you did that again?" Um, but Charlene recommended this book, uh, "Waking Up White," mm. and so I started reading that the other day too. So I've got that one going as well as "Lost in Shangri La," which is nonfiction. And it's just um, so I'm wait. I'm reading that to raise my awareness where we need to go in our our society today. Mm. And you know, just a couple of books going on right now. That's good. As That's well good. as Duolingo every day. They have the, the little Duolingo owl reminds me every day you haven't done your lesson. So I get out. You know, I definitely do my lesson every day. So I'm trying to read that one. But Tech those are the. Got two books and Duolingo going at this point. That's that's a pretty busy uh, off season for sure. So <laughs> and I do a crossword puzzle every day. Got to do, do really? a crossword puzzle. Uh, Absolutely, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm only a very good. I'm a co-director when it comes to crossword puzzles. So you know, I I my, my wife does them and then she'll ask me one question. I'm like, and I'll spit out some words. Go, that's not even close. And then she gives up on me. So, <laughs> but uh, all right. So before we ask the last question, if you guys, if you wouldn't mind, um, just letting everyone know how that maybe if they had a 
question for you? Is there an email or somewhere they can contact you? Um, if they maybe have a young official or something you said resonated with them and they want to maybe just discuss that further. Is there an email that you Absolutely. And, and I don't mind sharing this. I am still a dinosaur. I have an AOL account and I refuse to get rid of it. I love it. Because <laughs> I've had it so many years, but, you know, and I'm not creative either. It is the last name, first name, Kantner D at AOL.com. K-A-N-T-N-E-R-D-E-E at AOL.com. And I emphasize that second N because most of the time people forget it. And I become a wine decanter. It drives <laughs> me nuts. But everyone does it. And I'm like, it, my second N disappears, but it is D at AOL.com. And I, and I offer that. I think people think that I'm just kidding. But if, you, if there's any way I can help you, I'm willing to help. If, and I always, you know, I say this, anything that I can share that has helped, been helpful for me in my officiating career or just, you know, being a person, and I'm willing to share. Mm, yep, and I want to learn from you, too, because I'm telling you, you know, every day is a learning experience. Uh, and please never let, you know, I have some friends who will pay me to stay off Google one day. And I said, it's not going to happen. Because, you know, I'll see something out there and I go, wonder how, why, do you know, why does the bumblebee have to pollinate my tomato plants versus the honeybees? I've got honeybees in my backyard, but they can't pollinate the, the tomato plant. <laughs> they can't. I'm not kidding you. The bumblebee has to do it by buzz pollination. See, I'm a nerd. Don't, don't let it out. But I'm looking at my honeybees and they can't pollinate my tomato plants. I call that self-education. I think we Absolutely. do not do that enough, Dee. We need to self-educate. If we're going to oh, rely on someone to knock on our front door to teach you something, you are going to learn nothing. No. You have a to go out. fascinating world out there. Yep. It's great. I love it. I love it. All right. Last question. Okay. We're down to one. Good. Here we go. Right. Can you share with the YouTube or whatever, you know, the podcast world, one thing that most people don't know about you? I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to give you mine and then you can go from there. Or do you know exactly what it is? I don't, there are a lot of things people don't know about me. <laughs> and there are a lot of things people shouldn't know about yeah, me and well, I'm yeah. not going to tell them. Yeah, okay. Right. We're we good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I like to share that I have two metal plates and eight screws in my neck. So that's something a lot oh. of people don't know about me, but, and the doctors told me you're going to be on disability for the rest of your life. Go, Go fill out the paperwork, and I took that as a challenge and proved them wrong. So, well, God bless you. Good for you, Jeff. Now, I do not have any metal parts in my body. Good. Yet, thank you. Um, I don't know. I, I think again. I, I think a lot of people, you know, they see this persona on a basketball court, and, and that's just what it is at times. It's a persona. Mm. That's not who I am. It's what I do. Mm. And I, I think people get confused on that. Um, and a lot of, a lot of young people, I believe are reticent. Sometimes they'll see me at a meeting or whatever. And they're like, Ooh, it's decant. No, you know, none of us are different. We all, unless you've just devised a different way, you know, put our, our pants on one leg at a time. Um, and it's like, you know, like I got to let on that, you know, I'm an incredibly sensitive and, a mo you know emotional person and all those things, but there are times that you just can't be that in that arena. Mm. Um, but I'm a beekeeper. I told you that. I know a lot of people don't know that about me, mm. and that and that outfit looks fabulous on me. I'm telling you, you uh, it's really what shoes you wear with a beekeeping suit. <laughs> but um, no, I, I think uh, don't get caught up in the persona of what anybody is. Just you know, 
don't be afraid if you have a question of someone, you know, whoever it is. We're all people out here, and, and hopefully we're all good-hearted people who are just trying to make this world a better place. So Yeah, I think that's great advice, and I think that's one thing that I did not know about. I mean, I don't know a whole lot about you, Dee, but I can tell you this. <laughs> I did not know you were a beekeeper. I think that's pretty that's cool. Right. Well, I think that's very and, cool. Oh, they're fascinating. They're amazing. They're just amazing. But, yeah, so it was one of those hobbies I took up when I realized that uh, – you know, I had some time in the summer, and we, again, our environment, due to people not wanting weeds, they're spraying the Roundup, they're mm. getting rid of mosquitoes with this pesticide. They're doing, well, we're, we're running into a situation where we're killing all the honeybees. Well, mm. we don't have honeybees. We don't have crops. We don't have crops. We don't have food. You know, we're just doing a total disservice to the environment. So I kept reading of all these articles, and I went, well, let me help. So we presently have three hives in our backyard. And uh, just trying to help the environment a little bit. So when and it's a j- fascinating endeavor too. So you take so you harvest honey every year or whenever that is. Then mm-hmm. wow. we're harvesting some this Sunday, and uh, just you know probably uh, probably about I don't know twenty frames of honey. Mm-hmm. I do not sell it. You know, I just give it out to the neighbors to try to uh, mitigate any angst they might have uh, having honeybees near them. Right. Because <laughs> people don't understand them. You know, sure. ironically, we had one of our neighbors, you know, we had a swarm this past spring, and that's a natural honeybee activity. And they looked out their, their backyard and they're like, oh, my God, they're calling me going, your bees are swarming. And I'm like, you know what? They're actually the most docile when they're in a swarm because they're just following the queen. That's... And we'd like to think we're the queen bee, but we're not. They're following the queen. And they're not even worried about you, but I understand it looks ominous, that cloud of bees, but mm. they're not going to hurt you. Well, I do look forward to seeing you in the uh, beekeeper suit someday. I think that would be <laughs> a great sight. So, Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, Dee, I cannot thank you enough for spending just a half hour, 45 minutes with us and, and the listeners. I know this is going to go down as one of the most epic podcasts we've had. So well, thank you, Jeff. Um, it's much appreciated. And, and thank you so much for pouring into others, Dee. That is... Well, thank you. And you keep up the good work. Yeah, I mean, you're sharing with others and getting people involved and motivated. So kudos to you, Jeff. Thank you so much. Yep, it's my pleasure. And if anybody uh, wants to get a hold of me, you can contact me at jeffcross22 at gmail.com. And as always, if this podcast has resonated with you or you think it might resonate with someone else, please click the share button. D, thank you so much. And I hope your day is nothing short of amazing. Thank you, Jeff. Thank right. you. We'll see you, D. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.